I'm Lawrence Carroll, and welcome to Two Question Tuesday. I'm the author of ETFs for the Long Run, Dividend Stocks for Dummies, and a contributor to Forbes.com and Barron's. Each week on Two Question Tuesday, we randomly pick and answer two questions from clients of focused wealth management. This week's questions will be answered by Phil D'Angelo, Managing Director of Focused Wealth, and Michael Passante, the firm's Director of Financial Planning. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey guys. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good, thanks. Today's first question comes from Alan, New York. With the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond up more than a half a percentage point last month, it's now yielding 2.38%. My bond portfolio is down quite a bit. You said a few weeks ago you don't expect the 10-year to go above 2.5%. So what should I do? Buy more bonds? And do you think the 10-year is going higher than 2.5%? Yeah, we hit 2.5. We kind of bounced lower uh, on the 10-year yield. Uh, we're sitting right there, maybe 240 this morning. Um, interesting dynamics. I mean, you got the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index down over 6% now on the year, uh, following last year's, you know, couple percentage point loss. Uh, this is one of the worst years for bonds in history. Uh, how much worse does it get? You know, I, I think we do go over two and a half percent now by a little bit. Um, I'm not sure by how much. Uh, and you're starting to see, uh, you know, large moves uh, out of bonds, obviously, into into equities. That seems to what's been buoying up the market as of late. Um, so I don't know how much rate higher rates can really go right now. Uh, they can go a little bit higher, though. Um, but it is a bad bond year. I'll tell you what, though, there are really areas of the bond market that make a lot of sense right now. Uh, you look at national taxable immunity bonds, some of them look good. Uh, you look uh, for credit opportunity strategies, some of those look good. Uh, I wouldn't give up on a diversified portfolio by any means. Reinvest those dividends at these lower levels. Uh, ladder, you know, you're starting to get some really good real returns, uh, 3%, let's say for, you know, and if you look at the short-term treasuries, God, the two-year now is paying more than the 10-year which could be an ominous sign that a recession is on its way, and in which case you'd want to own bonds, you know, uh, for some downside protection as well if the market's ever traded off. But uh, I, I think that there's some opportunity now, and there's definitely uh, reasons to be optimistic if you understand what that side of the portfolio is, and that's belt and suspenders, and to provide a buffer uh, for when equities do sell off at some point. So. I'm comfortable at these levels. Uh, I think that rates do go a little bit higher, but again, uh, you're never going to catch the bottom of, of anything. So it pays to be patient, but it also pays to stay diversified and, and put some monies to work at these levels. At some point this year, inflation is definitely going to roll over and start to decelerate. There's still going to be levels of, in, of inflation, but when that does happen, it's more than likely that some of the upward pressure that we're seeing in the 10-year treasury kind of abates and rolls over just some, especially if growth is going to continue to decelerate. I mean, the second quarter growth rates are going to come in less than 2%. So it's going to be really difficult for the 10-year treasury to sustain a very high level, and like significantly north of 2.5% with, with growth and inflation both slowing, because those are key components to yields. Yeah. Yep. So taxable municipal bonds. Yeah, I think if you look around at some municipalities and certain some closed-end funds, uh, there are opportunities uh, in there. And they're starting to see some opportunities also uh, in some tax-free muni closed-end funds where, 
you know, what we're seeing are retail investors really uh, throw out the perennial, you know, baby with the bathwater. Why do you like closed end funds better than ETFs? Well, I think historically you're seeing spreads widen. And when you see spreads widen, wherever you see duress in markets, don't forget, let's explain to our investors what a closed end fund is, right? You have, let's say, $100 worth of an asset. Let's say it's $100 worth of a New York triple tax-free bond fund. Inside of there, there's $100 worth of bonds that will mature at some point. They typically trade at either premiums, if a manager might be the, have the hot hand and be very in favor, or if people like that asset class, or they trade at discounts. Historically, what we've seen are that when parts of the market are under duress or selling pressure, those closed-end funds are out of favor. Retail investors sell them, and they trade at a discount. Now, historically, when you buy closed-end funds, you always want to look premium to discount. And if they're selling for a large discount, $0.10 cents off on $0.90 cents on the dollar, $0.85 cents on the dollar, and they're a quality asset with a good dividend, right now you're seeing some around 5%, triple tax-free, you know, that's above 7% in the highest tax brackets, in New, again, in New York, um, they might make sense. And I think they do make sense to certain op- certainly open up a position in there. So that's why I like closed-end funds. There's a, a value attached to them. They're selling at a discount, where an ETF often trades very close uh, to the NAV, the net asset value of what's in there. There's not too much disparity because typically those are you know, made right? They're, they're issued uh, and, and computer run driven. So um, I, I in, in terms of market duress times, I'd rather pick up closed end funds. And to be clear, the difference between a closed end fund and ETF is a closed end fund has a limited number of shares. Correct. There's ETF, a set issue amount. Yep. And an ETF can create more shares as demand increases. You want to buy the New York triple tax free ETF right now, click a button, it goes, let's say it's an iShares product, right? Routes to iShares, iShares computer goes out and buys that right away. Boom, done. Closed end fund, Phil's running the closed end fund. We have, uh, you know, 100 shares issued of that closed end fund. And that's all that's out there. And they're trading secondary markets. Yep. Not an issuance. Right. Okay. And the second question good, we good have. Follow-up. That's a good follow-up question, Larry. I like that. I'm glad. Um, okay. And the second question we have today is from Ulysses from Arizona. The Federal Reserve recently said the housing market has become unhinged from fundamentals. Is the housing market in a bubble? And is there any way to capitalize on it? Should I buy a REIT? That's a real estate investment trust. For the, and should I buy that for the dividends? So housing pretty much everywhere across the country, especially recently, has started to go parabolic. And I think the rate of appreciation in housing right now is a bit unsustainable. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of that 2005, 2006 type of time period when it just people were bidding for houses with almost no regard for actual price. And part of that is due to the fact that these, the supply-demand imbalance continues to favor sellers. And that's driving prices a lot higher because the demand has slowed some from its peak, but inventories have actually slowed faster. Um, you've actually seen inventory levels across the country get down to 1.8 months of supply. And that's the lowest that we've ever seen. And it continues to go down, 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 largely because you don't have any new houses coming on the market. And when you listen to a lot of home builders in their earnings calls, they continue to tell the same story. You're seeing a lot of companies have a really difficult time 
getting products and getting materials to bring new houses onto the market. So you have that factor working in favor of the housing market. However, recently, mortgage rates, especially on the 30-year mortgage, have hit over five-year highs. The average rate of a 30-year mortgage is now 4.9%, roughly. It was in the 4.8s last week, and that's really gone higher recently as rates have moved and spreads have widened relative to treasuries. For a long time, the Fed was hitting the buy button on mortgage-backed securities too, and they've obviously stopped. And I think that's why yields uh, on mortgages have gone higher. But the fact of the matter is when you have rates appreciate that fast, the affordability of housing really gets dinged up quite a bit because the average payment of a mortgage goes up significantly on a monthly basis. So you have to have natural cash buyers come in and that's still happening in a lot of cases. So I I, I don't think housing can continue to sustain this level of appreciation, but at the same time, when you look at the supply demand metrics, it's really difficult to see these things rolling over. And, you know, Larry, your second part of that question was REITs and real estate investment trusts. I think real estate investment trusts are in a really favorable backdrop because of the supply demand imbalance, one, and two, because they trade with interest rate sensitivity. So if rates do roll over because of their yields, sorry, I should have added that in. So if rates do roll over and go down some in the back half of the year, REIT should be a very favorable performing asset class. They don't have a lot of volatility. So I think that's a favorable backdrop. I also think at some point, home builders are going to be a screaming buy because they have to bring new supply on the market. They really just need to uh, shore up some of the uh, supply chain and inventory issues before new houses can really come on the market. And inventory and home builders will also trade with some type of an inverse correlation to rates. Um, they've struggled a lot so far this year. And I do think it has a lot to do with the supply chain because you would think with demand levels here and uh, the average month of uh, supply at 1.8, you would think that more home builders would actually be performing well, but so far they're not. And that's the one area that I see that supply demand imbalance definitely favors. You're seeing the second secondary home market slow down too in many areas, right? So that's probably the first part that you're going to see taper off. Um, I just think when you look at rates, God, approaching 5%, that's you know, this is a sea change majorly to the economy, right? I mean, we've been in this decade now, post-financial crisis, where not only has the government been intervening in a lot of markets, to your point, mortgage-backed securities, you know, the fixed income markets, uh, the corporate bond markets, et cetera. And this is a big sea change. And it's going to take some time uh, for the sea change uh, to happen, to occur, and to work through the cycle. Uh, you know, to your point, second half of the year, earnings and comps, uh, being, you know, probably weaker year over year. Um, there's a lot of moving parts to this economy right now. And housing has definitely been a stalwart to the economy. Um, you know, things where you haven't been able to get done for a while. Uh, housing builders, right? Construction people, et cetera. It seems like there is uh, wor- there are workers available now uh, in, in some of those sectors. So, um as that backs off, it's going to be interesting to see what overall uh, that has to do uh, to the economy. Uh, another negative, uh, potentially, headwind that we are facing. So would you buy a home builder's EPF? At some point, I would say yes. I don't think it's time yet. They're, they're still in a pretty clear downtrend. And I tend to want to buy things after they sort of show some type of a base and begin to come out of that downtrend, rather than just what you call catching the falling knife on the way down and continuing to average in. I mean, 
The other thing that I forgot to mention that you have to consider too is most individual people, um, their biggest asset is their house. So this definitely does help household balance sheets some with home prices going up this considerably. The really tricky part is you have a pretty significant portion of the population that's being frozen out of buying because prices keep running up if they don't have enough of a liquid down payment to put down. And household price. formation has been a, a key driver, right, to the American economy. I mean, it, household formation over time uh, has been policies of administrations, et cetera, whether right or wrong, uh, that's been, you know, a large part of the American economy, um, whether it's, you know, purchasing uh, kitchens, refrigeration, you know, sofas, et cetera, household formation um, has definitely helped drive the economy with rates going up like we haven't seen percentage-wise for quite some time. I know historically, yeah, you know, a lot of people got their first mortgage rates at 18%. We hear our baby boomer clients tell, you know, talk about that all the time. Uh, so historically, it's still not that bad, but look at where you came from, uh, you know, nine to 18%, right? Or, or three to six, same percentage move off the bottom, right? Sea change, something to watch out for. Another sign that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable because what's next? Okay, thank you guys. That was Which great. Which is why you got to stay diversified and own bonds even in bad times. You know, let's let's look at three, five, and ten years. Right, those are the periods we should look at. I don't want to cut you off again. Are you finished? I'm finished. Okay, it's supposed to be two minutes. Thank, thank you very much. And if you'd like to submit a question. Send it to our new email address, which is question at twoquestiontuesday.com. And we'll be back next week.